0: You are listening to The Next Stage Podcast. I'm your host, Yudaha Kohen. And on this episode, we're going to talk about an issue that is polluting the soul of the Jewish people. An issue that most Jews themselves are completely unaware of, and that is the issue of Israel arming human rights abusers. When we speak about Israel being a Jewish state, what does that mean? Does that mean... Uh, European-style nation-state with some Jewish decorations? Or is it a state that expresses our people's values in its policies and in its institutions? Joining me on the show today is veteran activist Eli Yosef, who has been leading the charge to stop Israel from selling arms to human rights abusers all over the world.
1: Thank you very much, Nida.
0: Okay, Eli. before we get started talking about uh, this issue of arms sales, I'd like our listeners to know a little bit about you, your story, where you come from, what you've been doing with your life. You know, I, I'm really coming from the perspective that people like you and the others that we have on this show are really the type of characters that Hollywood can make movies out of, and I think it's important that the listeners who are hearing what you're doing and hearing what you have to say also have a, a sense of who you are. So before we get started, can you share a little bit about yourself, where you come from, how you got involved in the in the political activities that you've been involved in? Um,
1: how do I sum it up in a nutshell, as they say? Well, I, You know, like many people, I grew up abroad, I grew up in London, um, and uh, at a young age, at the age of 17, 18, I found out, let's put it this way, I really found out what happened to our people in Europe, and um, that was basically this trauma that has been the uh, that has been a turning point in my life. You're talking about the Holocaust? Yeah, I'm talking about the Holocaust. I'm talking about not the fact that we were murdered so much, which is tragic in itself, but in the way I see the things, we abandoned our people. In other words, the fact that the Nazis were bad guys is, a, is not a good story. But the fact that we abandoned our people, we could have saved them when we should have saved them, that is basically the trauma that has been the primal, the how would you say, moving force in my life but things like that should never ever happen again mm-hmm.
0: so you're saying when, when you were about 17, 18 you learned that the, the Holocaust wasn't what you were taught in school but a much it's, much much deeper story
1: exactly, it's a story of
0: in which uh, we share some blame in which the exactly. Jewish people we, we, are somewhat we,
1: we have to take responsibility for not saving our brothers we are not responsible for having murdered them but we are responsible for not having saved them
0: so you've been here in Israel for how long?
1: So I've been here now over 40 years. Um, I was in charge of the Beitar Youth Movement in England when I made Aliyah at the age of 19. Afterwards I served my service in the Army. Since then I've been active in middleweight until today. And um, I've been active on different causes um, where I felt that there was the abandonment either of people or of values that are, are intrinsic to who we are. Whether it was when we abandoned Jonathan Pollard or whether we Abandoned the fact that we can get to some sort of understanding between different forces, whether it's the army, whether it's the residents who are being moved out of Amona and, and there was fighting between them that I was against and whether it is now on this battle to stop Israel losing its soul. In other words, it's not just I'm fighting against arms going to mass murderers who, will, who want to kill women and children I'm fighting for the soul of Israel. I believe that if we become a nation that gives darkness to the the other nations, instead of giving light, then something intrinsic in our soul will will have as a a result that we will also do harm to our own people. Not only will we do harm to non-Jewish people by giving arms to murderers, but we will do harm to our own people. I mean, when when you have such darkness in you that you can do something like that, you will also go against your own people.
0: I met you at uh, the very beginning of Tafshin Samachbet, I guess according to the Gregorian calendar, that was like the very end of 2001 or beginning of 2002, uh, I remember you were organizing, uh, you know, just to bring Israeli students to the awareness of Jonathan Pollard. What, what had happened to him, You know what he sacrificed, the choices he made, and what that means in terms of the Jewish people's collective identity and how we have an obligation to fight for his freedom. How do you feel that went? Meaning now Jonathan Pollard is out of prison, he's under house arrest, he's kind of limited to New York City, uh, wants to make aliyah, can't make aliyah. Do you have any involvement in the Pollard issue anymore? Do you feel like that's been resolved? Do you feel like there's still what to fight for on that front?
1: Well, obviously he's not home. So obviously it's not resolved. Secondly, he was interviewed a couple of days ago where he said very clearly that if we abandon somebody like him who was in prison for 30 years for the people of Israel, then how are we going to treat other people in Israel, whether it's soldiers, whether it's other people. On these two points, of course, I agree with him 100% that his abandonment, is not a story unfortunately of the past it's a story of the present no American establishment is comfortable in allowing him to come home to Israel and nevertheless in my opinion the Israeli government should demand that he comes home he has served way above what he should have served and um, we are responsible what people don't understand with the Jonathan Pollard case they think it's a problem with Jonathan Pollard the problem is that Jonathan Pollard gave us information, information that we needed at the time, or at least we felt that we needed, and consequently he didn't act alone, he had a partner. The partner was the State of Israel, and the State of Israel cannot just abandon him for 30 years and carry on not making the necessary arrangements that he can come home immediately. So consequently, we have not understood the Jonathan Pollard story, and we just put it, made it his story. This is a story between Jonathan Pollard and the State of Israel. How they decided, in one, at one certain point in history, that they needed information that the Americans were not prepared to give us, and that information was we thought was crucial to our security. Consequently, Jonathan Pollard gave it to us. In other words, he didn't give the information to the air; he gave it to the State of Israel, who needed that information. And consequently, when we throw away our responsibility on this issue and ask for favors, or don't even ask for the favors then obviously that is
0: an act of abandonment. Right, I've heard you say before, especially in relation to your earlier point about the Holocaust and Jewish culpability in the Holocaust, that Jonathan Pollard really corrected the sin of American Jews during the Shoah, that Jonathan Pollard had a choice to make that ultimately was the opposite choice of what the American Jewish leadership had chosen during the 1940s.
1: Well, Jonathan Pollard said himself that he was not prepared to be silent like Jews were silent in 42, 43, 44 when the tragedy was happening you have to understand the information about the Holocaust was not secret it was known the word was out and we, with that word, we did not do what was necessary to stop the Holocaust and to save Jewry which could have been done i refer a hundred times we could have saved all six million Jews I do not agree with historians who think that that was out of our possibilities they simply do not even know how to relate to to, to what really happened and consequently I believe, yes, that Jonathan Pollard believed strongly that he could not repeat the same errors maybe more than errors, the same crimes of that criminal negligence that was what majority of free jury did during the Holocaust they criminally neglected what was happening to their brothers, and they did not sound the alarms in an effective way.
0: Okay, well, now for the last couple of years, you've been leading a crusade to essentially shine light on the fact that Israel's arms industry has been equipping human rights abusers all over the world. And the Amnesty recently came out with a report uh, in Hebrew listing eight parties that Israel sells arms to who are guilty of human rights violations. How did you start getting active in this cause? And what what have your experiences been organizing on this issue? What have the reactions from people been? Uh, Have you seen progress? And where do you see this struggle going?
1: Well, I came across the problem completely accidentally after reading a newspaper report of a group of rabbis who went to see the Eritreans in the Cholot uh, prison center in the south. Um, These are asylum seekers. The asylum, asylum seekers, exactly. Now, um, at the end of that report, they wrote a sentence that basically I had to read ten times to make sure I knew what I read. The sentence went something like this: it "went We can't send them back to Eritrea because they are likely to be murdered, and also by Israeli arms." And when I read that sentence several times, I understood that our arms were going to very bad places. And after I made a research, then what? Then. Not only were my suspicions confirmed, but made much, much worse than what I thought. Basically, we've been selling arms to the bad guys for close to 40 years. We've been doing this with with the um, connivance of the Israeli judicial system, meaning the, the Supreme Court. I'm talking about the uh, Attorney General and the Supreme Courts that so all are part of the cover-up when I mean cover up I mean the most despicable cover up one can think of I'm talking about a former Attorney General who was after the head of the Supreme Court his name being Aaron Barak who when he was Attorney General to the Prime Minister to the government of Israel in the 70s okayed arms to Argentina and Chile where 30,000 people were killed including 2,000 Jews who were connected to left-wing Zionist movements like Hashomerat Say. In other words, we gave arms to a government who was cracking down on the socialist elements in that country including socialist elements who were loyal to Judaism and Zionism in their understanding of Judaism and Zionism in other words Hashomerat Sayyir. Consequently, this is something despicable that an Attorney General can okay that. And now we are no less than over 40 years after that, close to 40 years after that, and till today, the Supreme Courts refuse to allow the divulgence of all those documents appertaining to that. So even when you have people whose parents were killed in those massacres, who live today in Israel, and they appeal to the Supreme Courts to divulge the documents, so that the people responsible should be brought to justice there is no cooperation it is secret in the words of the supreme justice the right of the people to know is not more important than the interests of the Israeli government in other words the Israeli government as of today does not want these documents reviled so consequently when you asked to divulge the documents of 1994 when we armed at the very same time the PLO on the one hand, and Rwanda on the other hand. You're so talking, when, you're talking when about the, Shimon
0: Peres and Yitzhak Rabin. Uh,
1: that's right. When the Yitzhak Rabin, Shimon Peres, and Yossi Sarid government, on the one hand, armed the PLO, on the other hand, they armed Rwanda. In other words, you have a problem here. You have a problem that we un- do not understand the sanctity of life. This is a problem that was very very strong during the Holocaust when we could have warned our brothers what they were saying we could have given the chance to run away that we didn't do that and now we are not allowing the Jewish people in the land of Israel to do the basic things that every Jew is allowed to do not only on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur but on every day of the year you're allowed to to do a self-searching and change your ways Every person has the right to make what we say in Hebrew, to make tshuva, to make a return. You don't have to go the same ways that you were beforehand. So if we made a mistake, if we did something really wrong, we have the right to change our ways. The government of Israel has asked the Supreme Court to deny us that right. The left-wing governments and the right-wing governments, all the governments. And the Supreme Court says yes, we deny the Jewish people the right to change their ways. This is nothing less than Sodom v'amora. This is Sodomic activity. These are not people who violate human rights in a small way. The President of South Sudan has sent forces into villages where they kill the men, rape the women en masse, and then burn them all alive. We have 382,000 people who were killed in the last four and a half years by those forces in South Sudan that we armed. And many of them we even trained. This is, not, this is not something you can say, well, it was a mistake, it was here, it was there. This is something major. Right. This is consistent. That's, this is consistent. It was with Rwanda, it was with Serbia, it was with South Sudan. Now in the Cameroon it's happening. It was happened a year ago in Myanmar. It's happening in the Philippines. We are giving arms to the biggest criminals in the world. These are not small criminals. These are one. These are top criminals. Top top criminals. The only other criminals who rank beside them are people like Assad, like Putin, like the head of North Korea. Korea. These are the other people who rank in that type of, of. These are people we're giving arms to. These are the people who are receiving Israeli arms. And many of them also Israeli training. Five days before the election campaign. There was a program on a Friday night. I complained to the television that it was on a Friday night because they always make these programs when they have them on a Friday night so that religious Jews can't see them. About the story in Cameroon today, how over 170 villages were burnt to the ground and over 5,000 women and children and men were massacred and there is now 250,000 refugees there. The next day I speak to the person who did the program. Why is there no follow-up? Why is there no discussion? Who are we? Why are we doing these things? Why? He says, "Well I can't do. I do my job. I can't tell the television program what to do." In other words, if you are talking about a champagne bottle that Bibi took or, or something else that he did, there would be 20,000 follow-ups. And here there's no follow-ups. Right you have 20,000 people investigating where the champagne came from where it didn't come from where how many he took how many he didn't take whether she had the ice cream or didn't have ice cream all these you things about the uh, accusations against uh, our prime minister and his uh, wife That's right all these accusations would have been investigated 3,000 times mm-hmm. they'd have looked for leaks from every here no leaks no investigation cover
0: Yeah, for me, Eli, this is really a, an issue of, of Israel's identity. Uh, like For me, this is an issue of like what does it mean to have a Jewish state? Is a Jewish state really just like a European-style nation-state with some Jewish decorations and, a, and an artificially constructed demographic majority? Or is a Jewish state a state that really expresses our people's values and its policies and its institutions? And you know, from a moral level, from a halakhic level... You know, from a a level of just who we are and what we're supposed to be, what is our mission in history, this seems like a terrible violation of what we came back to life to be after 2,000 years of exile. So the question is, how can we take this issue and put it into the center of the national conversation? How can we... You know, whether it's Israelis, whether it's diaspora Jews, how can we make this an issue that's actually part of the public debate, at least on the same level as uh, champagne bottles and ice cream in the Prime Minister's house?
1: Well, here we have the basic problem. The campaign against the Prime Minister and his Mr. Nevers or not Mr. Nevers are backed by energy. Mm -hmm. That energy is a hate energy they hate the Prime Minister, they hate a lot of things that he stands for, and although I do not agree with the Prime Minister on many issues, especially on this one I don't have any hate for him. Mm-hmm. now why am I saying this, because this is important to understand, how do you create a campaign that can be successful in a light that everybody wants to be involved in the cover up, including the press, everybody's part of the cover up, so how do you how do you manage to get it into the public eye when everybody's involved in the cover-up? There is only one way. You need a lot of energy. But unlike the hate energy against the Prime Minister, you need love energy. People who say, I care, I do not want to be involved with mass murder. I want my child to know that we don't do such things. Not behind the backs, not under the backs, not under the covers, not oh, We're not involved in that. Our essence is to be a nation that loves humanity and that eventually blesses humanity. We are not here to do that. And I say more than that. I say that in 2011, when the revolt started in Syria and people started revolting against, against Assad, we had a golden opportunity to bring Assad down, save half a million lives in Syria and make peace were the people who revolted against Assad, who at the time were not the extreme Muslims of of ISIS. We did not do that. We let things happen. We know the results. Assad called up Putin. He called up Iran. And now in the next war in the North, we will have to fight all of them. And it will be much more costly. What am I trying to say? In the parasha of Noah, it is written that when somebody went up the, up the, up the tower and a, and a stone fell, everybody cried. And when a human being fell, nobody cried. And then we say that God, he mixed up the languages. In other words, they became mixed up. They became confused. When we do not understand the sanctity of life, we ourselves are confused. And I agree with you, Yuda, we lose our very identity. We lose who the hell we are. We don't know who we are. And consequently, we don't even know who our enemies are. We don't know anything. And consequently, in the last elections that took place only a month ago, I literally went begging, political party after political party, just say that you will not enter a government that carries on giving arms to mass murderers. Just say that. I begged the right. I begged right-wing parties. I even begged left-wing parties. Not one single political party, from Meretz, all the way to Zahut and Beit Yehudi, were prepared to say that.
0: What about the Palestinian
1: parties? Did you speak to Balad or? No, I didn't speak to them because this is a battle that has to be fought through the love of Israel.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, if the Palestinian party says we're against that, then we use that to say I'm against Israel. Here, another bad thing mm-hmm. Israel does. We are not coming from that point of view. We are coming from the point of view we want to go back to who we are. You want Israel to be what Israel is uh, supposed uh, to be. We coming out from love of Israel. Mm-hmm. Our motivation is love of Israel. Is Zionist. Is Jewish. It is not a motivation to show us in a bad light to the nations. Mm. That is not our motivation. Our motivation is that the nation of Israel should do a self-searching process and come back to who we are and understand that when we are mass murderers and we take money... For that, we are not strengthening Israel's economy. We are, pr- we are planting the roots of the destruction of Israel's economy. Because Israel's economy cannot be based, not even 1% on money from mass murders.
0: Okay, well, I have to say that uh, there's another angle to this I see. You know, when I was a soldier in the army, my boots were made here in Israel, in an Israeli factory by Israeli workers. And now when I see my students go into the army, their boots are American-made, meaning that our boot factory shut down, all employees were laid off, lost their jobs, and now our soldiers are equipped with American boots. The aid we accept from the United States, the military aid that Israel accepts from the United States, come with strings. The strings used to be that 76 or 77 percent of the money we get have to be spent on American equipment, on American arms, now it's 100%. You know, the last version of the deal is 100% of the money Israel receives, meaning that this is actually American government money subsidizing its own arms industry. Israel, and not only Israel, I'd say also Egypt and Jordan and the Palestinian Authority and Bahrain, you know, and and countries all over the world who receive American military aid are really just the vehicle through which the United States funds its own military-industrial complex. Now, as a result, we have an arms industry that was set up for the purpose initially of equipping our army. And as a result of our army having to now purchase its equipment abroad from the United States, I can very easily see the executives and even the workers at these companies saying, hey, we don't want to go like the boot factory. We need to keep our people employed. We need to keep our company up and running. And the only way we know how to do that is to go and sell to these human rights abusers. And even more, our defense minister in the last government, Victor Lieberman, when he was challenged on this in Knesset, he got up and he said that we take our moral cues from the what he called the ethical nations, the United States and the rest of Western civilization who we see all the time arming all sorts of people in conflicts, including us, including our neighbors, including our enemies. And I I think it's not just about taking money from the United States, not just about taking weapons from the United States, but I think we're taking values from the United States. We came back to life to be something different. We came back to life after 2,000 years in order to lead the world somewhere better. And I think a large part of that is trying to figure out who we are. You know most nations when they achieve liberation they really go through this kind of like post-colonial experience. They have a post-colonial conversation where they try to figure out what are the values, what were we before we were colonized, you know, and and all peoples need to go through this, but especially us, because not only were we colonized in our own land, but we were dispersed into exile, and we spent 2,000 years in all sorts of horrendous conditions, at the mercy of host nations, often with like very brutal persecution. And now that we've come back, we beat the British, we forced the British to leave our land, We took down their flag, but we put our flag on their system. We never went through a deep, like you said, a a deep experience of soul-searching. We never had a deep conversation in Israeli society. What is this country supposed to be? What is this country supposed to represent? And as a result, we've essentially been defining ourselves as this kind of like outpost of Western civilization, this European-style state in the Middle East with some kind of Jewish character, some kind of Jewish decorations. But when we want to talk about deep values, like whether or not we sell arms to human rights abusers, this is not part of the discussion. I look at this issue as obviously a very serious symptom of, of a much deeper issue in Israeli society, an identity crisis in Israeli society that we haven't been willing to confront, not since
1: 1948. First of all, I agree with you. I say, though, you have to go deeper. We go back back to the trauma, the greatest trauma of the Jewish people in the modern era. How in the hell did we allow six million of our brothers to be massacred? That is the basic question that, we, that this generation should have asked ourselves. How did that happen? I'll tell you a small story. In 1994, I brought to Israel a man called Professor von Dardell, the brother of Raoul Wallenberg. I called him up in his home in Switzerland, and I asked him what's happening for the research for his brother, who saved tens of thousands of Jews. He said he travels three times a year to Russia to look for him, and he was crying when he was telling me this, and no one wants to help him, not the Swedes, not America, not Israel. Anyway, I brought him to Israel, and I begged. When I say begged, I mean begged. The Prime Minister's office, the head of the Prime Minister's office, Eitan Haber, and every single member of Knesset. This is Prime Minister Rubin. Prime Minister. Not one of the people were prepared to meet him. Not one. And at the very same time that they weren't prepared to meet the last person on earth who was looking for his brother, who had saved tens of thousands of Jews, we were arming mass murderers. The PLO and Rwanda Now what does that mean? That means not that you just abandon a man Who's languishing in prison Or maybe he's already dead But you're abandoning everything he represented You're abandoning that power of compassion And now what is that power of compassion? I claim that is the essence of Israel's soul The rabbis say Israel, Rachmanim, B'nai Rachmanim They are compassionate Our essence is to be a compassionate nation one, because we were created in the image of God who is compassionate. And basically that is who we are. The whole of our history says that we have to be compassionate. The whole of our history says, remember what you suffered when you were in Egypt. Look after the person who is a stranger. Everything about us. And now we go through something even harder than what we went through in Egypt. We go through tragedy untold of. Much, much worse than what we went through in, in Egypt. In Egypt we didn't lose 6 million people. And we come out, 75 years later, what we're doing with our arms, we're arming mass murderers. So all the things that you said beforehand, sure they're logical. We should not be dependent on American arms, we should make our own arms, we should be doing our own thing. But let's say we have a misguided government who wants to be dependent on America. Who wants that? But you make your own morals, the morals of people who are mass murderers, even America, who are mass murderers in Saudi Arabia, they don't arm people in, in South Sudan right, because limits. the American public cannot take, take it when they see South Sudanese soldiers going into, into villages and, and massacring women and children. When they bomb from the air, they don't look too closely. But when it's too close, they can't take that. So even America says, OK, we'll arm people who bomb from the air, but we won't arm people who go in and take So even America has something that is above us. And we say, no, everybody's cashier. Everybody you can sell to. People who are involved in mass murder, you can sell to arms. We've gone crazy. We have lost who we are. And this is not just the right. This is the right, this is the left. This is the intellectuals. This is the judges. This is the the, the press. Everybody is turning a blind eye. So
0: how do you see this moving forward?
1: There's only one chance of this to move forward, in my opinion and that is to create a mass youth movement. The people who have finished the army and start looking for jobs, they're they're already, you know, maybe you can get a few of them involved, but you've got to get the 16, the 17, the 18, the 19 year olds, the ones just beforehand, when they still have that innocence of the heart, that not only it's the right thing to do, but they have that compassion that gives them the feeling we can do it. Mm -hmm. It's not enough to say it's right. Many people agree with me but they say we can't do it. We don't have the power. You've got to not only know that it's the right thing but you've got to feel the power. Mm -hmm. That power comes from what the daughter of Pharaoh taught us. She sees a child crying. She knows she's against a regime that is much stronger than her. But that feeling in her gives her the power I'm revolting everything. And therefore she educates the Saviour of Israel in the same compassion. Unless we feel that compassion, unless you can feel what it's like to be murdered, what it's like to hide under a table when, a, when murderers come and pray that your child isn't killed, unless you can feel that and turn that feeling into passion and turn that feeling into strength, then we're not going to get anywhere. In other words, it's not enough to say it's not the right thing to do. You have to have that passion. You've got to turn that compassion into passion. Otherwise it's nothing. And when we have 100,000 youth in front of the Knesset who refuse to go home and say, you have no right to inherit to us these crimes, then we will have the revolution of the heart in Israel. And that is what we need. That revolution. Not because we have an interest. None of us have... Have 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 uh, have shares in any company that does sell arms or doesn't sell arms? Not because we own anything, because we cannot live with ourselves. Right. Well,
0: Elieh Yosef, I wish you success. Thank you for being with us and uh, helping our listeners to understand a little bit about what's going on uh, on this issue. I think that uh, the more awareness that uh, we're able to spread in the Jewish world specifically I, I think the more we're able to make the Jewish people aware most people are completely unaware most Jews you speak to I'm sure have no idea what you're talking about most Israelis you speak to have no idea what you're talking about and I imagine a lot of your experiences are that people are sympathetic at first then go into their research and come back with an unwillingness to help Exactly. inability to help right? because they realize that you're not supposed to get them so, so what are some of the I, I guess that's the question what are some of the the barriers here what are, what are some of the who are some of the forces preventing us from being able to move this issue forward
1: Look, the biggest force is uh, the money mm-hmm. in other words you have a system of money which basically says let's make money big money from arms deals with mass mergers Behind these arms deals, you have the richest people in Israel and the most influential people in Israel. I'm talking about the richest families, I'm talking about the most influential people, former chiefs of staff, former generals, former heads of Mossad, police, Shabak, involved in all of this. And when you speak to a minister who is a minister of police, you tell him about this story, he agrees with you! He says, I know, you're right! I'll see what I can do He comes back two weeks later He says I'm not even going to get involved Now why would a minister Who is a minister who agrees with you Mm -hmm. Who was the person who helped you run the Pollard campaign When I ran the Pollard campaign That minister He organised the committee in the Knesset for Pollard So somebody who who you can feel uh, 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 How would you say A certain identity with You can feel that this guy is not completely indifferent Now on the other hand when he sees what he's up against, he says, no, I'm out.
0: He backs out. Exactly. And that's been your experience with and every that politician. Has been,
1: and that has been my experience with everybody. Every politician. Every single politician at one stage backs out. They're all scared. <sighs> to the point that in the last election, people who agree with me refuse to make of this a condition. Even the Meretz people who, refuse, who agree with me And who don't plan to go go into Bibi's government anyway. And no, but no. But they they wanted to go into a Gantz government. Yeah, but they said, if Gantz gets elected, I can't make that a condition. In other words, that can't be a condition to go into Gantz government. They weren't prepared. No one was prepared to make a problem on this issue. You did speak with Benny Gantz about this issue during elections. I spoke to Benny Gantz, and Benny Gantz basically is somebody who doesn't want us to see the situation. He says, it's not happening we didn't sell, we won't sell. Well, even though he knows that we sold. Uh-huh. And even though he knows more details than I know uh-huh. what we sold. But he is also amongst those who want to say we didn't do anything bad. Well, like Bibi says, <laughs> there was nothing, there is nothing. There uh-huh. never was anything Same thing, 382,000 people were killed with their arms, that never happened. Uh, 800,000 killed in Rwanda, that never happened. Nothing happened. It's, it, it never happened. If it wasn't reported and we didn't release the documents, even though there are documents, it never happened. It never happened. We never did anything bad. And we won't do anything bad. That is the attitude of Benny Gantz, which is obviously not nothing. There is one member of his party called Bo- Boaz Toporowski, who has committed himself to present a law on this issue. There are parts of the law that I'm not happy about because he doesn't want it to be a committee that is completely independent of the Prime Minister's office and of the thing. That was a committee that would oversee the law. But On the other hand, he's prepared to do that. When the pressure comes against him not to present the law from his own party, then we will see if he carries on. Of course, now we will work with him, hoping that he will surmount the pressure with his own inner strength. But the exam of that, we still have to see. All right, Eli
0: Yosef, thank you so much for being with us. I wish you success, and uh, anything you need going forward, we hope to uh, be able to use this as a platform to raise awareness. And uh, anything concrete, of course, we're happy to help with as well.
1: Thank you very much, Yudah. It's a voice what is not only my pain, what I believe is our pain. And please, God, we will find a cure.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. This is Yuda Cohen. The Next Stage Podcast, Vision Magazine. You can check out the show notes for this episode at visionmag.org backslash the next stage. Number three. There you can also find the link to support our podcast, which I really encourage you to do. Every little bit helps. And if you like this podcast, don't forget to subscribe. We're on SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher. And please leave us a rating and review. It really helps us to reach more people and get these ideas out to a much wider audience. Thank you for being with us, and thank you for supporting Vision Magazine.